Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Not any old episode, but our 100th episode of Talking New Energy. I'm incredibly excited to have reached this milestone, but most of all, I'm honoured to have so many people listening to all of the episodes we've recorded. Most of our listeners, are, most of you are in Europe, also in North America, in Asia and beyond as well. It's been great bumping into some of you at industry events, meeting with you, talking with you and hearing about what you like and find interesting about the podcast. So to celebrate the 100th episode, I'm putting together 10 extracts from different episodes that I think best bring the energy transition to life. So then my top 10 extracts from some of my favorite episodes. For those of you listening that have been guests, you're all my favourites. Every episode is a favourite episode, but uh, I had to pick 10 for this uh, podcast today. And here's what we have. So in no particular order, I'm starting with an extract from series nine, episode two of series nine, where I talked for the second time, actually, with Joris Jonker, founder and CEO at Econic, a company based in the Netherlands, bringing e-homes to as many customers as they can. And the reason I'm picking this extract is through Joris's experience of growing QB, a smart thermostat company, and now growing Econic. I've found there's no shortage of people with good ideas in the energy transition. There's no shortage of startups. What's really, really hard is scaling. And Joris has achieved that once with QB and is on the way to achieving that with Econic. And what he has to say about his experience and the mistakes he's made, I found fascinating. So that means that uh, initially when I spoke to Delta first, we, uh, we planned to, uh, to have the heat pump as the core offering. Yeah. Uh, um, but now, because we have this large solar company, we, are, we will also start offering just solar as a service. Uh, yeah. Okay. Again, small steps because I found that uh, that it's a little bit that's a similarity with QB and uh, back to your mm. uh, last question is uh, uh, we were also uh, too advanced uh, from the start with QB. This uh, this device was able to do everything in your home. Yeah. Uh, uh, smart home, smart energy uh, thermostat, uh, energy control, uh, uh, virtual power plant. Everything was built in, but that's not what consumers like. They like to buy just one. Uh, functionality. So we were successful when we started uh, selling the, the 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 tone as a just a thermostat. Okay. Uh, so so what I learned is what's the similarity is is maybe uh, two things. Is one is uh, 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 consumers uh, uh, in the end they need an integrated system, um, uh, but they like to buy it in uh, in small steps. So. Uh, um, um, so I actually, I made a very big mistake, which I should, should not have done when we, we launched uh, uh, Econic, is uh, we tried to sell this full e-home. 
yeah. with the heat pump and solar panel on the battery and everything combined. Um, uh, uh, and uh, now after two and a half years, we decided to, to make this big change. You can buy, you can buy a, a, a EV charging, you can buy a solar panel, you can buy a heat pump, you can buy a battery, uh, mm-hmm. or you can buy two or three or everything. Um, and we, I, yeah, I believe that the consumers, uh, they, they want to take these small steps. And of course, in the new builds, it's, it's the full Monty and there yeah. will be customers who, are, who will buy everything, but most customers like to first buy one, one component and uh, hopefully they, uh, they will buy that component from Econic because we are able to provide the whole uh, system. In both cases, yours. I guess you started with a vision, and ultimately, well, with with QB, you got maybe not every aspect of what you described in that that vision, but uh, you were taking steps towards that. With Econic, again, you started with that vision. Some parts of the market you could fulfil it, but other parts you realised that was too too big a step. And it makes me think a bit about scaling because a lot of I remember one conversation with a, a big uh, energy retailer and they said, I want a proposition that's low capex, low risk, highly scalable, can get to volume quickly. Well, don't we all? But that scale, that speed of growth is really, really important to make a difference to the energy transition, to move the needle for a company's financial performance. And what you've described is in customer facing businesses to move the needle to get that growth, you've got to be very pragmatic. You might have a vision, but as you say, if you only sell a big step to customers, you'll have a very small part of the market. You've got to provide those stepping stones for customers and take them on a journey. Extract number two is from uh, episode eight of our first series, where I talked with Charlotte Bluesand who is founder and CEO of True Energy in Denmark, and Simon Schmitz, founder and CEO of Avatar. Um, They'll both in the extract explain what they do, but I picked this extract because since recording this, both companies have been acquired by uh, larger companies who are now in the process of scaling them. In the case of True Energy, Charlotte's company, that was acquired by Landis & Gear, the metering company. And Simon Schmidt's company, Avatar, has recently been acquired by Tado, the smart thermostat company. So this, is, I think, is a really nice illustration of uh, how startups can scale, sometimes organically, sometimes through being acquired. Let's hear from Charlotte and Simon. Yeah, True Energy is an electricity supplier, and we sell electricity at hourly rates. What makes us different from our suppliers is that we have developed an app that integrates to electrical vehicles. And through the app, we smart charge the car, meaning that we will automatically charge the car during the hours of the night where electricity is cheapest, or during the hours where the production of electricity has the lowest carbon emission. And uh, we're also working on integrating to chargers and heat pumps and freezers and other household appliances. Um, so we will be able to automatically optimize their energy consumption through our easy to use app. And how long have you been doing this, uh, Charlotte? How long has been true how long has true energy been about? Just for one year. 
And, and what, what brought you into this area? Or what's your background? Yeah, our background is from software development. We want to apply the knowledge that we have from that business to automation and user behavior uh, in the electricity industry. Okay. Um, let's now introduce my second guest, uh, Simon Schmitz from Avatar in Austria. Um, Simon, what can I buy from Avatar if I'm in, in Austria? Yeah, hi. Um, we also offer a um, sort of dynamic dynamic hourly tariff that basically passes on the, um, the power prices from the spot market to uh, to the end customer, which is um, it's been a completely new concept in in Austria when we we started in uh, back in 2015, and uh, we're now also rolling this out to to Germany, um, and it's it's still a totally new concept there as well. So we we are trying to really push the um, the envelope in enabling the demand side flexibility in that sense, and uh, we are um, we're also offering different kinds of services to help customers automate. The, um, you know, the load shifting, and uh, we're partnering with uh, quite a few hardware manufacturers to uh, to achieve this. Okay, and uh, you've been uh, at this a bit longer than than Charlotte. But what's your background, and, and what brought you into this area? I was actually working for a, a big energy supplier in um, in the UK and Germany um, before I founded Avatar and um, it just became apparent there that you know there was a big problem with the renewable energy storage it was really being recognized but the, the big suppliers especially the sort of power generation side of the big suppliers uh, didn't really seem to have an interest you know in enabling the the customers to be part of the solution and um, yeah that was sort of at least part of the inspiration to start our own energy supplier the second part of this extract I liked because Charlotte illustrates the challenges of scaling and particularly when you're trying to automate and connect different devices together, the different protocols, the, the lack of standards and the hard, hard work that's needed to go product by product and connect them to a platform. Yeah, the concept is quite simple, but in reality, it's quite a lot more complicated. First of all, because uh, all the car brands are different, so it's a lot of work actually to be able to communicate with each car and get access to the relevant data. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we continue with the integration to heat pumps, it's just going to multiply this challenge. And uh, uh, secondly, people behave differently. So we have to implement all kinds of rules and exceptions into the app. For okay. instance, um, yeah, what if... Uh, if you have to charge right, right now, even though it's the most expensive hours, or what if several people use the same car but have different preferences? Hmm. Okay, so when you start to get into this, it quickly becomes more complex than it might seem uh, initially. Um, Charlotte, presumably you've got to, if you're, every car manufacturer is different, does that mean you've got to have commercial arrangements with every car manufacturer, or you've got to have uh, bilateral discussions and agreements with all the different manufacturers? Uh, um, there are various ways. So some of them we have discussions with, and others that have APIs that we could just use. And uh, it depends. It's more like a case by case uh, yeah. decision. 
Now, extract number three is relating to customers and loyal listeners to the podcast will know I often talk about customer centricity and the uh, not the lack of it, but the way in which the energy sector needs to get far, far better at engaging customers, particularly as the energy system becomes more distributed, more decentralized, more and more of the energy system will actually be in customers' homes, in their buildings, at their industrial sites. And this extract is with Marzia Safar from uh, Kalusa, which is part of the OVO group of companies. And uh, Marzia is talking about using their platform to provide insights for their customers and not just general insights, but personalized insights. Let's hear from Marzia. So to me, mm-hmm. I feel like customer engagement is very much lagging in the energy industry because energy is a, is a basic necessity. We just want to switch the light on and have the light come on. Yeah. You don't really care about the billing. But when you actually now have, as a customer, when you start to put smart devices in your home and your bill goes up, that's that's a point where the then customer wants to engage. Yeah. That's when the yeah. customer says, okay, well, how am I supposed to do this? How can I How can I take advantage of this? And I think I see a lot of hope in, in and make and, and seeing a lot of customer engagement once we have once they get smart devices in their homes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's really interesting what you said about different customer types because another thing I see the energy sector being very guilty of is talking about the customer. There's not yeah. one type. <laughs> There's all loads of types, but segmenting them is, is really important. Um, how do you build that into your work at Ovo? I mean. I see a big difference between incumbent energy companies and the, the new breed of energy companies. It's easier to have a different culture in a, a new energy company than an incumbent. But tell us a bit about how in Palooza or Ovo, you, you really embed that customer-centric thinking. Sure. So we don't want to we don't want to build for the techie customer. We want to build technology for the non-techie customer. That's our goal. If we build technology that a non-techie customer would want to use, we're, you know, we've succeeded. And the way we do that is, is we talk to these customers and we, uh, we ask customers, okay, how, you know, what do you need for you to want to, to engage? And one thing, for instance, that we have put for uh, as part of the Kalusa platform is um, is a customer spotlight. So when you go to your uh, to your um, Ovo Energy bill and you see your Ovo Energy bill online, you get a you get a spotlight that is only tailored to that customer and nobody else. It's a very and personalized. It's very a personalized. very personalized, and the more personalized you make the interface, mm-hmm. the easier it is for the customer to want to participate because they get interested. So our our number one goal is to make it more personalized, to make it tailored for each customer, um, and to to make sure that if we build for the non-techie, then we've covered almost everybody. And in the second part of this extract, Marzia talks about how, as a company, they use customer insights or how that permeates a whole company. And that bit struck home with me because in a number of my podcasts where I've talked with CEOs, um, the CEOs of 
quite big energy retailers, even the CEOs talk to customers and answer customer emails. And that really helps to embed the customer experience right across the company. I think the key mm. the key is when, uh, because everybody's going to say they're customer centric, uh, I think mm. the key is, are you thinking that customer centricity means one customer archetype or all customer archetypes? And are you thinking yeah. that customer is yourself or is it the actual customers in their houses? And that's, that's a, a you know, I think I think sometimes uh, people make make assume that you are you are the the customer that that you're building for, and we try to avoid that as much as we can. Yeah, yeah, and that's by a lot of focus group research, a lot of primary customer research, bringing that voice of the customer right into your business. Yeah, yeah, and and for us, even management, we get a we get a weekly update of uh, titled "Voice of the Customer." And that, yeah. that goes not just to to uh, middle management or to analysts, and, but that goes all the way to, to the CEO of the company. We we yeah. get to, everybody gets to hear the voice of the customer on a weekly basis. Friday afternoon, we get that email. Okay. Okay, I like that. My fourth extract is a podcast episode with Philip Porster. CEO of The Mondo, a German heating installation company or online heating sales and installation company. I chose this because in this distributed decentralized world that we're moving into, installing equipment in customers' homes and selling equipment to customers, be it a more efficient heating system in this case, but it could be an electric vehicle charger, could be a solar panel and battery, uh, the process of selling and installing with customers becomes really critical. And I think Philip is a great example of a company that's making that whole process as seamless as possible for customers. Okay, uh, let's move to the second question about installers and uh, the different models. Rox, let's start with you again. And from, uh, from the research that you've been doing, to what degree do companies with more of an online uh, presence, to what degree do they, are they using their own installers or to what degree are they contracting installers? So it really depends on the company and the country. There's uh, one example I can think of in the UK where they employ their installers directly. And I think uh, it's similar in France with some of the energy suppliers there. But a lot of the new entrants in this space, at least in the UK, uh, they work by subcontracting their installers. So they they won't have um, installers employed full time. They'll only use them when they have jobs coming in from customers. And I'd say that's probably the more common uh, route for for the newer players. In so the that's UK. a real that's a real Uber type model then, uh, connecting yeah. uh, to connect installers to jobs. And what do installers think of that? Do we have installers that are uh, purely working for these types of companies in an Uber model, or are they mixing and matching their own sales and then working for um, these platform companies? So we did some research with installers recently um, and asked whether or not they're subcontracting and how much work they are getting this way. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because we found that, um, I think it was about 50% of installers said that they were only getting a quarter of their work through these subcontracting channels. Um, 
but a lot of them think that will increase. So what happens, I think, is that installers usually uh, sign up to these platforms, get one or two jobs this way, and then they sort of realize that it's quite easy, they don't have the hassle of doing um, all the quotations and payments, and then they start to take on more and more uh, once they're sort of more comfortable with it. Yeah, okay, so um, a, a move towards more of an Uber type model from, from what you've seen. Philip, you've you've gone down the, a, a different route. Uh, can you tell us about your your experiences of how you started and and where you're at now and and why you've gone that way? Yeah, uh, so at the very beginning, we also went for for that kind of model where we, we actually wanted to be even less than Uber. We wanted to be just a broker. Um, uh, then we went to an Uber model if you wanted, mm -hmm. and then uh, and then ultimately, like in six six to nine months into um, the after the launch, we went to for the full uh, integration. And that was definitely the right model for the first three years. I mean, keep in mind, we were one of the fast growing companies in, in, in Europe, actually, as per Financial Times, mm -hmm. uh, during those years, 13 to 16. So it was no limit to our growth, interestingly, although, you know, the capital market actually told us, uh, and a lot of skeptics were out there saying that this will limit your growth. And, um, and, and I think whether that is the right way to do or not also very much depends on the labor market. Um, yeah. Obviously, if, if we had launched in a country like um, like uh, Spain, you know, in, in those years with an unemployment rate of beyond 20%, that's a, that's a much more relaxed um, labor market. Now in Germany, uh, um, there's literally no unemployment, it's certainly not for skilled labor. Mm -hmm. um, so just uh, uh, from that perspective, it, it did make sense to do what we did. It also made sense because we had direct access to Obviously, the, uh, could train our people, we could invest into our people, we could uh, create something like a terminal way of installation, yeah. um, and obviously train our processes. Um, and, and I guess with a more complex actual technical job that is more important than with a less complex one, well, that's... because you can literally make more mistakes. The fifth extract is from episode five of season six, which looked at the topic of energy insights and customer engagement. And I was lucky enough to talk with Hakan Ludvingston, CEO and founder of Elik, the energy insights company, and Ronald Root, who's a data science enabler at Dutch energy retailer Eneco. And the conversation around energy insights I found both fascinating and also so important. Uh, there's so much more data available in the energy sector now, but how that data is turned into personalized insights in the way Marzi was talking about earlier I think will be absolutely key to engaging customers and taking them on a journey to uh, reduce their carbon emissions and become part of a decentralized energy system. Yeah, I think on, on from my side, I, I think there's just one thing I wanted to sort of pick up on. Uh, I think so sort of looking at how energy insights have worked uh, over, the, over the past five, 10 years, uh, we look at it as very much a, you know, let's, you know, you'll typically have a, a, a data science company or or department that will, uh, they'll look at, oh, here's a lot of smart meter data. Let's do something with it. Uh, hmm. What are the cool insights we can find out that that can add some value to people's lives? And you'll process it, and you sh you're, you'll ship something back to the customer. Some, uh, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, um, like a bar chart or or a pie chart of disaggregated mm -hmm. consumption or, or whatever and that's not actually I, I think that that's something that's going to go away more and more i think what, what we're moving into now is much more of a a 
two-way um, relationship between energy suppliers and their customers. And that, that's both in terms of these digital products. So um, not um, as well as the, the business model. I mean, you, you might be participating in flexibility programs. You might be generating mm -hmm. your own uh, electricity and so on. And that that kind of uh, one way street of, of uh, taking some data, drawing some conclusions and shipping you a home energy report with your with your whether it's with your your electricity bill or, or with email that mm. you won't really get that close to the customer in that approach so whereas if you got a a um, if you manage to build like a a digital channel to to communicate with your customers and engage with and not engage not engage a customer but engage with a customer um, you can also learn from them so how do they react to to this piece of advice how mm. How did they find or experience these different um, elements? Uh, if we, you know, if we told you that you would save uh, 15 euros per year if you turn your your heater down by a third of a degree, would does that does that make an impact, or does it have to be, you know, um, um, 50 pounds for you you to care at all? So I think that's really the direction that uh, that I think we're going to see the whole market go, and and, and that's. Ultimately, that's that's uh, that's what we do. Um, so, so very much what can provide or engage with rather than provide insights to. Um, and I guess Ronald, that comes from all the way back to the beginning, where you talked about feedback and this being uh, having that feedback loop with the customer. Yeah, I, I agree with with Akam that the bar chart or a pie chart uh, on itself for the data-minded geeks uh, like myself is very interesting and uh, probably is something that I will talk uh, to my wife about. But for a lot of our customers, um, yeah, they'll, they'll just yeah. shove it away. Um, yeah. And only you do engage with the customer and that, that, that has, I think, feedback uh, in itself, or at least that's how I, I, I call engagement. Uh, um, you, you, you'll learn something about that customer at the same yeah. time and actually know also what message can be delivered where. My sixth extract is from episode five of season two, when I talked with Greg Jackson, who is the founder and CEO of Octopus Energy. Now, Octopus uh, is a, well, was it not that long ago a startup? When I spoke to Greg, they were already one of the fastest growing energy retailers in the UK. And since the recording, They've grown internationally, both in terms of energy retail and with their Kraken platform, and are very famously a unicorn in their, their valuation. So a hugely successful company. And with Greg, I talked about both customer centricity and the use of technology and how he sees uh, technology both being good for customers and helping customers uh, become part of the energy system. Fascinating discussion. Let's hear now that conversation with Greg. And that, um, you talked a bit about coming from a tech background, but uh, part of that will involve tech, but part of that just involves thinking, putting your, the customer first in your thinking, I imagine. Yeah, I think far, far too often, uh, companies in incumbent industries like energy think of tech as being a way to cut costs, mm. but actually it's a way of reinventing the entire customer experience. So, uh, you know, tech can bring transparency, 
we often remark, you know, Uber shows you where the car is. Deliveroo lets you know that the guy is about to knock on your door. Yeah. That transparency in, in the operation applies just as much in energy. So our question is, now that it's basically costless to give information to customers, how do we give them as much information as possible to enable them to easily understand what's going on with energy? And then our article of faith is that if we're transparent and open with them, they'll choose to stay with us even when a, a company with a different strategy might offer them a short-term better deal. Uh, yeah, so all of the above. I think the, there's a great video from Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon in 1998, when Amazon had just started opening uh, its own, building its own warehouses. And the interviewer said, uh, I thought you were an internet company uh, and here you are building real estate. And Bezos said, internet shim internet. It's all about the customer. He says, we will do whatever it takes to bring our customers better products and services and better value. And so if that means building a warehouse so we can reduce the delivery time, we will do that. And I think it's the same here. Look, it's all about the customer. Uh, customers require energy. They're not bothered whether it's coming you know, down a wire or from a, some, a thousand miles or whether it's coming from next door. Mm. What they want is their energy needs, needs met. And our job is to understand the very, very best way of meeting those energy needs uh, and bring them the products and services that will do that with the best value that suits their lifestyle in a way that makes them happy. So if I turn that question around a bit then, to achieve that aim, how quickly do you think your your business will shift from being almost purely based on centralized commodity to um, optimizing, for example, electric heating or electric vehicle charging or, or vehicle to grid even? I don't think it's, it's sort of a, an either or or a shift. Mm. I think it's just an increasing um, number of ways in which we will meet that customer need. So for example, uh, today, I think we've decommoditized electrons to a high degree. Mm. Uh, we've got plenty of customers now who have tariffs that give them super cheap electricity to charge an electric vehicle at certain times of night. Uh -huh. The ones who've got tariffs that mirror the half hourly wholesale price and that charge kind of peak pricing when, when the network's busy and super off peak pricing when it's not. So already one electron is very different than another. And I think the more we move to a world in which a green electron traveling a short distance down an empty wire is a cheap electron, the better. Mm -hmm. Now that could mean having your own solar panels or batteries. It could mean that we put a facility at the end of your road. It could mean we're supplying you from next door. But I think, you know, that creativity and the way that we meet the customer need is already beginning to happen. Now for energy retailers, a future with more active customers, with uh, personalized insights, of course, is very different from the future they've been in. And while companies like Ovo and Octopus could reinvent or invent, develop their own uh, back office systems from scratch, many utilities or big energy retailers need to adapt their back office infrastructure. Sounds like a bit of a boring topic, but it's crucially important for them to succeed in the energy transition. And in the next extract, which is episode eight from series six, uh, my colleague Andy Bradley hosted this episode and he spoke with 
uh, Vitsa Castro from Accenture, who work with utilities on transforming their back office infrastructure. And uh, Vitsa's perspectives on that I found really interesting and that the challenges that big utilities or incumbent energy retailers have with their back office infrastructure. But of course, I mean, there is a difference between the top strategy and the top thinkers and the execution on the ground. And I think that's where the challenges uh, that we currently see is that although the strategy might be great, the execution is poor. And, and, and also because technology is moving so quickly, right? So what was relevant five years ago is already outdated uh, now. And what's, what's hot now is already might, might be outdated in six months. So you, you need to keep enormously up to date with all the new trends and technologies and also your people need to evolve and it's i mean the french they say it's education permanent you need to to learn over and over and over because the knowledge is just disappearing while, while you're looking at it mm. um so i think that's really the challenge and that's also how how we try to help our clients is, is by building digital factories by collaborating together bringing in digital experience bringing in design thinkers bringing in ecosystem partners, software vendors to, to, to keep that ecosystem and that factory running and, 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 and helping them with that. And, and next to that, perhaps another trend is, it's not only the IT organizations anymore, it's really much more business led because these technologies, this whole digital transformation, digital is a business challenge. And because it's not only a technology supporting something, it's actually the technology might be the new product or the new service. So. I think also this convergence between the business and IT is is very prominent on the agenda, and I think that that separation that we that we had probably ten or twenty years ago is is not relevant anymore. It's really business and IT working together in in this digital transformation type of approach. And and again, okay. some companies have it better than others. Now, in the ten extracts, there there had to be an episode on electric vehicles, given the traction that it's getting. And uh, we went to Norway for one of our episodes, not literally, virtually, to talk with one of Norway's leading public charging providers, uh, talked with Ole Hendrik Handersel, CEO of Mayor Norway, about their experience in growing their public charging network. Um, staying on the theme of customers, I think Ole's uh, experience of how to set things up in a way that customers could understand and use and was simple um, from pricing to the charges themselves. Uh, struck home for me the challenges of uh, customers adopting new technology. Like many of you, I'm an electric vehicle driver and the charging, you have to work at it sometimes when you're using public charging. So it was really interesting hearing Ole's experience of what they've learned over the years and how they can simplify things for customers. The real trick is to get the user experience correct. And that's not only about the box. It's about how you work with your location partner. So this ties into the place you're actually at. It's about how yeah. it ties into the app. It's about how it ties into the car. It's about how yeah. you enable 5,000 people every month come through our network for the first time. So they've never charged their car. Oh. And they're in front of the charger with something they don't know, their new electric car. And they're supposed to use that with a charger, which they don't know, with an app yeah. or something. And yeah, these yeah. people are not tech-savvy first-mover advantage. Guys, they're my grandmother. Yeah. So yeah. they don't know what a kilowatt is. They don't care what a kilowatt is. 
They just want this to work. Well, Abhishek, you, you told me once you had over 50 charging apps on your phone? 52 different apps on my phone just to get around the UK, um, which gets, gets tiring. Uh, yeah. Quickly. Um, that, and that's an amazing number, 5,000 new people using your network every month. Um, mm. What what have you learned about that, Ole? What, what have you been, over the years, you must have learned tons about what they find easy, what they find hard, what goes wrong? Um, so this system, the chargers and the cars, are designed by engineers and to a large extent for engineers. Uh, it's supposed to work on a standard, it doesn't. Uh, as an example, if you want to charge a BMW i3, for some reason you have to close the front door. I don't know why. <laughs> if you want to charge a Golf of the first uh, model years, you will have to, after you plug the plug into the charger, you have a 15 second window during which you have to start to charge. If you fail to do that, you will have to physically unplug before anything can happen. There are a million things like this, and the sum of it right. is that when you're in front of the charger for the first time, even if you're tech savvy, this is going to be a struggle. And we have cameras on the charger, yep. on the charging station, so we can see what people are doing. And the classic is male, 45, standing in front of this thing with two cables, like just looking <laughs> The abyss, sort of. Uh, so user experience and ease of use is really important. The first time you do this, it needs to work quickly. Over time, you can start building loyalty and understanding, but that first time, it's just supposed to work. Let's just consider something very basic. You've bought an Audi. You're coming with your Audi e-tron to some sort of service station with chargers. And you drive in, and there's a bunch of boxes. Over there is Tesla. The plug will physically fit in your car, but nothing will happen if you plug in. Yeah. Next to that, you will have, let's say, Ubitricity or something, right? And they will have several boxes. They will have a 50 kilowatt charger and 150 kilowatt chargers. And these things are priced differently. So you're left, you, you're, even before you've parked, you have to make a choice between three different places. Should I go to Tesla? Should I go to that small charger? Should I go to that large charger? And making that decision means you need to know what sort of car you're driving, what sort of station you're looking at, what sort of price is at that station, and no average customer will do that. So part of the trick here is to eliminate all that complexity and just try to make it as simple as that is humanly possible to make this. Now, the other topic that's on a lot of people's minds these days and um, brings out a lot of strong emotions as well is hydrogen. So for the ninth extract, uh, I took episode eight of series five, where I talked with Raluca Leonardo of Nell Hydrogen, uh, the Norwegian electrolyzer manufacturer. And uh, Raluca talks about her pipeline, but I particularly like the way she talked about dreamers because it can be hard work pushing the energy transition forward, as many of you all know, and at times, we all need to dream and be inspired by our dreams. And I like uh, Raluca's characterization of the dreamers that she comes across. Our pipeline is, is growing very fast uh, year by year. We see projects are larger and larger. Uh, the average size of the project is increasing. We have more projects that are over 100 megawatts in the pipeline. Um, 
and we see more and more uh, companies uh, entering the industry on the customer side. Um, yes, there are some companies that don't really understand uh, the space yet. You can call them dreamers. But yep. in general, there are a lot of serious players that are uh, that have clear plans and put down the money to invest. And do the how do you manage that? Do the dreamers, as you call it, take a lot of time in terms, or do you have to filter out the dreamers quite early on in your business development and sales activities? Yeah, we do our best to to understand uh, who's serious and and who's not, and dedicate the time to the right projects. But it's always a balancing act. Uh, sometimes yeah. the dreamers actually do get the projects done. Now, the last extract is from uh, episode eight of season five, and when we went all the way virtually again to Bangladesh uh, to talk with Sebastian Grow, managing director of Misol Share. Uh, my colleague Nigel spoke with Sebastian, and you may wonder why I'm finishing with one on Bangladesh. Well, um, you'll be familiar with the concept of leapfrogging on how emerging economies can sometimes leapfrog uh, Western economies. We like to think that Europe's in the lead when it comes to the energy transition, and in many ways it is. But this example from Bangladesh, I found absolutely fascinating and I was very humbled with my sometimes Eurocentric thinking about what Sebastian has achieved in Bangladesh and how customers in Bangladesh are using solar and an amazing number of batteries and uh, the business model that Sebastian's pioneered around that technology. Let's hear from Sebastian. They already took kind of their fate in their own hands by investing their money into a solar home system and had to pay this every month. And they also knew like, okay, what is the size and how much does it produce me? And they also know, okay, if I have more efficient appliances, I can watch TV lay, uh, longer in the night or can can do whatever whatever I want. So there is, I think in terms of when we call, when you use another word, energy literacy, those people in terms of literacy, in terms of how, how solar power works, how energy efficiency plays out are probably much more literate than we are. And that is very important. Mm, that's very interesting. Yes, I hadn't really thought of it like that. But you're right. There's, you know, the, I suppose the average Western energy user simply has to have, need have no knowledge at all of what goes on beyond the socket. Um, so exactly. Quite, that, that's what I yeah. meant. What is what is yeah. difficult, Nigel, just to, 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 to finish that point is still going to the people and telling them, hey, look, now you can earn money from your system. That is a big jump. That is something which is really hard to get across. And there's a very specific reason for that. And that is the people have always lived under constraints. And constraints means I have a 50 watt peak panel. If I use too much, I go dark. So if you tell someone yeah. now, hey, now you can sell, the first reaction is fear. And why fear? Because fear of not having enough. And now you're asking me to sell? That doesn't make any sense. No. And then it's for me, in the beginning, it was counterintuitive. No, you can make money. No, I don't want to make money. I want to have power. So that's mm. something we had to learn for a long time that before, through the interconnection of individual systems, as long as we cannot guarantee a certain service uptime, we'll never get someone to sell power. 
So it's not like that I switch on and say, okay, now you're interconnected with your neighbor and now start selling. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. You have to grow the platform and you have to gain the trust. Right. Right. That's interesting. um, So um, you've got this more energy aware uh, market, but there's psychological issues to do with the whole concept of trading itself. Does the storage, you know, you've talked about fear there and the fear of not having enough. Does storage play a part in that or is the storage not part of this story? I think that's the most remarkable thing. And again, I'm trying to build that bridge. If we look into the Western world, we're all waiting for, you know, the next uh, power walls to go out and all trying to get Mm -hmm. storage into the houses. When I say 5 million solar home systems, I don't say 5 million solar uh, PV panels. I say systems, which means these 5 million are also 5 million batteries in the houses, which country has 5 million batteries in 5 million households. That's a very rare thing. So that's my top 10 extracts. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. Uh, A big thank you to all of the guests that have appeared on Talking New Energy um, for your your time. If you'd like to appear or if you've got ideas for episodes, please do get in touch with, uh, with us. A huge thank you to you for listening. Um, and please um, give us feedback, tell us what you'd like to hear, and hope you do keep continuing to listen to the next 100 episodes. Maybe not every one of them, maybe every one of them. And a last thank you to my colleagues at Delta EE, those that have appeared on the the podcast, sharing their expertise, and those that do all the hard work behind the scenes to produce the episodes and to get them up on the various platforms that you use. So, yeah, very uh, exciting and a great honour to uh, record this 100th episode. And thank you to all of you for listening. Look forward to welcoming you back to another episode soon. Thanks and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com.